Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 46. 
Last time, our story looked at Eisenhower and the President's determination to find some way to ratchet up the pressure on the Communists and end the Korean War. We learned that even while his visit to South Korea and his subsequently belligerent talk suggested that a great offensive, possibly of the atomic variety, may well have been on the cards, it was far more likely that Eisenhower was building up a picture for the Communists to see of a prepared and poised United States ready to do whatever was necessary to end the war. He was bluffing, in other words, but bluffing in only the way that President Eisenhower could. We noted that even here it was entirely possible that other facts were to blame for the Communist decision to call for meaningful peace talks at the end of March 1953, not least of which may well have been Stalin's death in early March 1953. The Korean War was very much that Soviet leader's conflict, and now that he was dead, much of the spirit seemed to have gone out of the war. For one, the Soviets were no longer willing to block any efforts to achieve peace, since Moscow was no longer aiming to further alienate Beijing and Washington, as Stalin had tried to do. In this episode, we reconcile these ideas, but above all, we delve into the idea of atomic diplomacy. Why was it used? Was it successful? How did the United States regard the use of the atomic bomb in general, both in the only government that ever launched such a weapon in anger, and in Eisenhower's, which came after? Let's find out as we tackle this fascinating question. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by... Well, it's actually brought to you by the Versailles Anniversary Project. Yes, indeed. The Versailles Anniversary Project is something very, very exciting, history friends. And you might, if you are plugged into Wendell Plancy Fails on social media, you might be aware that it's on the way on the 11th of November... 2018, in other words, the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice. But if you weren't aware, this is your official notice. I'll probably have some kind of state of the podcast address on the way as well beforehand to kind of tie everything together. But yeah, this is why we are working so much on the Korean War. This is why releasing so much episodes. Well, actually, the main reason is because I didn't plan this very well. But the other reason is because I want to get Korea out of the way. I want to get it firmly concluded and wrapped up before we start into our next big project. I didn't want it to be kind of like, one week is Korea, the next week is Versailles. I want to have a small break so that we're able to kind of digest what we've learned and enjoy the Korean War in our time, and then move on comfortably to the next era of history. Because yes, if you weren't aware, Versailles has an awful lot going on within it. For eight months, so from the 11th of November 1918 to the 28th of June 1919, the world was effectively made at the Paris Peace Conference. But the only aspect we will be looking at, because we need to have some kind of limits here or else we'll go on forever, is the Treaty of Versailles. Now, most of you have heard of the Treaty of Versailles, but what you might not know is that the Treaty of Versailles only dealt with Germany. There were all sorts of other treaties to deal with the other central powers, such as Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, Austria, and even Hungary. A lot was going on, as we have said, But with this approach, I hope to do at least a Treaty of Versailles justice. I hope to ask those pertinent questions and give my own take on those kind of revisionist ideas. Was the Treaty of Versailles bad? Can it be used to explain the Second World War? Did it lead automatically to everything else that came after? Did, and this is an interesting view in itself, did those that went to the Paris Peace Conference and negotiated Versailles, did they really have any other choice other than to treat Germany badly? Now, that's an interesting question, and we'll get into it in time. Why am I rambling about the Versailles Anniversary Project just before the Korean War? This isn't what I normally do for a Song of the Week advertisement thingamajig. 
Well, history friend, that is dead right, but I just wanted to give you a heads up on what's to come, and hey, maybe if you are interested, and maybe if you know other people that are interested, you should let people know. Let them know that when diplomacy fails, we'll be doubling down on its Versailles treaty coverage. I hope to see you guys there, but otherwise, the song of the week this week is something a little bit, well, baseball related. Take Me Out to the Ball Game by the Hayden Quartet. This was released in 1908. It's a classic, guys, and it should be fairly familiar to everyone, even those like myself who don't know what's going on if they ever watch a baseball game, which I never actually have, but I'm sure one day I will. Perhaps I can persuade Anna to go to Fenway Park with me, if that's the name of the big park that's in Boston. Anyway, yes, I'll be going to Harvard as well, so make sure to see me there on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2018. If you're listening to this several months afterwards, I went to the Harvard Sound Education Podcast Conference, And it was pretty cool. Anyway, guys, enjoy this song of the week. We will be back afterwards with episode 46 of the Korean War. On a Saturday, her young foe called to see if she'd like to go to see a show. But Miss Pig said, no, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Oh, buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes are out at the old ball game. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Oh, buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes are out at the old ball game. Katie, Katie saw all the game, knew the players by their first name, told the umpire he was wrong all along, good and strong. When the score was just two and two, Katie, Katie knew what to do, so just to cheer up the boy she knew, she made the gang sing this song. Take me up to the ball game, take me up with the crowd. In the January 1956 edition of Life magazine, John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's Secretary of State until 1959, would claim that the armistice reached to Korea could be explained by the threat made by the United States to use the atomic bomb against the communists. Dulles claimed that the American use of atomic diplomacy had conveyed an unmistakable warning to the communists, and that it was a pretty fair inference to say that because the war had ended, this policy had worked. Dulles's claim underlined the fact that it seemed to take 
the Republican administration only six months to end the Korean War, while the Truman administration's stalwart Democrats had dragged the conflict out for two and a half years. Any effort to make a historical claim for the sake of political credit should also be subject to questioning. That's only right. Yet Dulles' claim has in many ways transcended the traditional laws of history. Instead, it has become accepted canon on the Korean War, for many who don't realise that the record of atomic diplomacy's success rests to a great extent on John Foster Dulles' word. But the critical question is, of course, was he right? To answer this question, we must first try to put the question of atomic weaponry in context. Far from a last-minute pressure campaign, the looming threat posed by the atomic bomb had been a background theme of several pre-Korean crises. And it also surfaced during the Korean War itself, most notably when MacArthur proposed sowing an atomic wasteland over the Yalu River to prevent communist reinforcement. That MacArthur was dismissed for this reason, as well as several others, should tell us what we need to know about how that plan was viewed in Washington. Yet this doesn't mean that atomic weapons were never considered throughout the Korean War, nor does it mean that Washington never imagined that one day, perhaps soon, the terrible weapon would have to be used again. On the one hand, it was still easy to consider the United States as the sole nuclear power in the world by June 1950. After all, the United States had a clear but qualified nuclear advantage over the Soviets, even considering the latter's graduation into the atomic power camp. America had nearly 300 atom bombs in its stockpile, and more than 260 aircraft capable of dropping them on Soviet targets. The Soviet Union had exploded its first nuclear device only 10 months earlier, and could strike the United States only by one-way bomber missions or by smuggling nuclear weapons into American harbours aboard merchant vessels. While both powers dramatically increased their nuclear stockpiles and improved their delivery systems during the Korean War, this balance favouring the United States did not change fundamentally between 1950-53. to 53. If Washington desired it, in other words, it could destroy the USSR with atomic fire before Moscow could even fathom a response. On the other hand, though, American atomic superiority came with a few caveats. First, despite flaws in enemy delivery capabilities, the grim truth was that Moscow's ability to strike the American heartland was growing as technology and understanding of atomic weapons progressed. Secondly, Washington was forced to acknowledge some real limitations in America's actual ability to put atomic weapons onto enemy targets. Although war plans called for launching an atomic blitzkrieg against the Soviet Union in the event of a general war, there were no atomic-configured aircraft deployed outside the United States when the Korean fighting began. Strategic Air Command and their planners estimated that it would take three months to bomb Moscow into submission, given the inadequacy of forward bases and overseas fuel supplies. By 1953, the probability of swifter, successful strikes against the Soviet Union had increased thanks to the introduction of jet bombers, the development of overseas bases, and the deployment of aircraft carriers modified so as to be able to carry atomic weapons. But the Pentagon did not have custody of any complete atomic bombs, and the State Department had not begun negotiations for their deployment to foreign soil. That meant that Washington had no immediately usable atomic force near Korea. Despite these clear limitations, though, President Truman, President Eisenhower, many of their key advisors, and probably most politicians, along with the majority of the general public, believed that nuclear superiority was an advantage which ought to be usable. This might sound breathtakingly inhumane and short-sighted today, the image of the United States launching nuclear Armageddon in the name of 
Korea appears both suicidal and unnecessary. To this, it has to be added that while the two presidents were sensitive to the moral dilemmas posed by the indiscriminate destructiveness of atomic weapons, both, as trained military men, placed them at the top of the hierarchy of usable force. The two presidents certainly viewed the use of atomic weapons as an event which would mirror the events of Japan. Hiroshima and Nagasaki burned, Truman would always maintain, so that American boys did not have to die in vast, unacceptable numbers to the American public. If Korea became a Japanese situation with its zealous defenders and predictably impossible casualty lists, surely Truman would behave in the same way again and resort to the weapon, which was believed, rightly or wrongly, to have brought the war in the Pacific to its end. Indeed, within days of the outbreak of fighting in Korea, both Truman to his political staff and Eisenhower to his military peers alluded to the possibility of using nuclear arms. By early July 1950, Pentagon staff officers and the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet surmised that, if the situation in Korea became desperate, Congress and the public would demand the use of nuclear weapons. This assumption was based on the idea that nuclear weapons could save the United States from having to suffer such awful casualties. If it had worked in Japan, surely it would also work in Korea. Blow up a city, and the enemy will come to the peace table. Before long, though, it became clear that the situation was vastly different to that of Japan's several years before. For one, there was the diplomatic outcry to consider, which would flow from Washington's friends and foes alike, and could well provoke a response from Moscow, where in 1945 such a response would have been impossible. Another consideration, as Max Hastings explores, is the idea that using nuclear weapons against the Chinese or the North Koreans in the event of a stalemate in Korea would have been regarded with violent and bitter hostility within the United Nations. In other words, it was much harder to justify a nuclear strike during a stalemated, limited war than it had been to justify a nuclear strike against a mortal enemy engaged in total war with your state, against whom you had long since planned a final and terrible invasion. Japan and Korea were like apples and oranges, and it was for that reason that I said last time that I didn't buy the argument which stated that Eisenhower intended to use the bomb. I believe instead that he wanted the communists to believe that he intended to use it, and that because of that rearmament program under NSC 68, the Eisenhower administration also felt confident that their bluffs would be taken seriously. When Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles considered how to make use of their atomic pressure in spring 1953, they looked back to that Cold War epoch which has since become shrouded in a kind of haze, the Berlin blockade. While today the Berlin blockade isn't seen as a crisis which was solved by atomic threats and which was resolved more due to the skill of Allied airmen and the corner into which it painted Stalin, by the time of the Korean War that event acquired a new significance in the atomic deterrence debate. In the summer of 1948, when the Berlin blockade was in full swing, the United States had moved two squadrons of B-29s to Western Europe. At the time, the press lapped up news that these bombers were travelling to Western Europe, Hadn't these been the same planes used to drop the fat man and little boy on Japan? Such musings belied the fact that although the aircraft were similar to those that had dropped atomic bombs in 1945, these B-29s in summer 1948 were not actually configured to do so. In addition, President Truman and his diplomatic advisers practiced restraint at the same time, rejecting Pentagon requests for custody of nuclear weapons and avoiding negotiation tactics that might back Moscow into a corner from which there was no face-saving escape. 
This tactic proved invaluable when Stalin indeed backed down in spring 1949, resolving the immense tension which had built up over the preceding months. The historian Roger Dingman noted that this episode in the early Cold War had a considerable impact on how atomic power was viewed. He wrote, As time hazed over the particulars of this episode, they came to believe that atomic arms could be instruments of force without war. Their credibility might even exceed their actual capability if they were used, without overt threats, for the purposes of deterrence rather than compellence. Thus, American statesmen and soldiers brought to the Korean War the conviction that atomic arms, if properly employed, could be extremely valuable tools for conflict management. We may remember back to the 31st of January 1950, where Truman approved the development of the hydrogen bomb in response, I believe, to an intercepted and decoded cable between Stalin and Kim Il-sung, declaring the former's intention to support the latter in Korea. This incident touched off the subsequent change in American foreign policy and helps to explain why Washington adopted its new approach of containment as it did. The blink-and-you'll-miss-it edition of the hydrogen bomb speaks volumes about the role which nuclear power was still believed to hold in war. By preparing its most advanced nuclear arsenal, Washington could be prepared to strike whatever situation unfolded on the peninsula. On the last day of January in 1950, the Truman administration could not have known what form the Korean War would take, or whether the Soviet Union would march alongside its North Korean satellite, or, even more dangerously, whether Moscow was just going to use the Korean War as a distraction to move somewhere else, perhaps in Western Europe. Under these circumstances, atomic readiness was essential so that Washington could deter the Soviets from moving rather than compel them to leave, for example, the outskirts of France, after the event. On several occasions during the Truman administration's handling of the Korean War, though, between June 1950 to June 1951, the question of nuclear weaponry and its use in diplomacy would again rear its mangled head. We're going to spend the rest of the episode investigating these occurrences to place atomic diplomacy into the context of the early stages of the Korean War, so let's begin. Atomic power first entered into the Korean War debate during the President's Blair House meeting in late June, where Truman instructed the Air Force chief to prepare a nuclear strike on the Soviets if Stalin entered the fighting. Fears surrounding Soviet involvement were based upon the premise that Moscow's active participation in Korea would represent a new phase of the Cold War, possibly a very hot one. Later in the conflict, in early September 1950, Truman would finalise this approach to the Korean War under those two policy papers, NSC 73 and NSC 76. The former outlined what would be done in the event of Chinese involvement, the latter in the event of Soviet intervention. Tellingly, the latter report of NSC 76, that one outlining what would happen if the Soviets got involved, planned for World War III, not the limited war which Korea came to house. Truman's willingness to make use of the nuclear stockpile that the Soviets became involved underlined the idea that these weapons were not out of the President's mind once the horrors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima had been witnessed. Under the right circumstances, nuclear weapons could still be used as a viable alternative to costly, ruinous war. The second instance of atomic diplomacy occurred two weeks later, after the North Korean People's Army had pushed forward and seemed poised to overwhelm the American-held positions. 
While some in the National Security Council meeting on the 7th of July wished to show that we mean business, the consensus developed two days later that what was needed was boots on the ground rather than a nuclear strike or demonstration. Indeed, MacArthur was, as we remember, named as Supreme Allied Commander in the region, just as the decision was made to remove the option of nuclear weapons from MacArthur's playbook, a timely decision if the General's later rhetoric is anything to go by. Significantly, even with taking the decision to use nuclear weapons out of MacArthur's hands, Washington's top-level figures in conversation with their British peers had persuaded the British to admit nuclear-equipped B-29s to the south of England by the 10th of July 1950. This would permit the United States to launch a massive atomic attack on the Soviet Union in quick time should the event be called for. The Truman administration in this case appeared to be following the Berlin blockade formula, believing that a demonstration of one's atomic capabilities would deter Soviet involvement and restrict the Korean crisis. At this point, Dean Acheson seems to have approved the measure, not to spook the Soviets per se, but to confirm to the British that Washington meant business. For the sake of demonstrating its resolve to its key ally, Acheson approved the move to bring long-range nuclear bombers to Britain. What neither man said publicly was that the atomic cores of the weapons remained in the United States. But the Soviet Union did not have to know this, even if the top levels of the Attlee administration in London did. The act of moving B-29s to the different regions of the world map for the sake of exerting pressure was becoming a favoured tactic, as three weeks later it was used again. This time it would be used in two places, in Tokyo and Taiwan, and in both instances it was inferred through the press and intimated in veiled language rather than declared outright by the Truman administration that atomic weaponry was on the cards. It was almost more frightening, as Truman well knew, to move behind the scenes with a level of subtlety on the issue of atomic weapons than it was to loudly claim that atomic weapons were in play. Let the Chinese and Soviets see the evidence, remember what had happened before, and then feel their imaginations and fears run wild. If this psychological tactic was believed to be effective, then there is little evidence that it played any role in preventing Mao from wanting to intervene in Taiwan, or that it stopped the North Korean People's Army from breaking through the Pusan perimeter. Those two theatres were saved by other diplomatic and military means than the atomic weaponry which shifted around menacingly in the background. But this didn't mean that Washington was finished with them yet. Indeed, before the B-29s returned to their bases, State Department officials began to consider how to best help the Air Force select their targets in the People's Republic of China. Even more importantly, the President's senior advisers recognised that the highly personal, ad hoc style of decision-making that produced these deployments of atomic-configured bombers might not be adequate for the future. They proposed, and President Truman accepted, the formation of a special National Security Council subcommittee on atomic matters to consider principles and procedures for future transfers of atomic weapons to military custody. If another crisis arose, the administration intended to be better prepared to consider whether or not atomic arms should be used to solve it. The third crisis event came in late November 1950, when Chinese forces, as we know, stormed the Allied positions and ushered in, in MacArthur's phrasing, an entirely new war. It was in this context that Truman's revelation to reporters on the 30th of November 1950 that the atomic bomb's usage had always been under consideration was felt. The president was speaking the truth. Nuclear weapons were far too much of a trump card to not be under consideration, 
and the administration's fluid approach to the weapons illustrates how highly they were regarded. Not only that, but Truman's apparent uneasiness during the conference and his claim that the commanding general was in charge of such weapons confused and alarmed America's allies far more than it needed to. Truman, accidentally or not, had come to the press conference unprepared and was subsequently maligned by his allies for his lack of clarity and transparency with them over something as fundamental to the Allies' cause as atomic weapons. When Clement Attlee arrived in Washington in early December, he asked that the United States only use such weapons in consultation with its allies, but the Truman administration was somewhat sketchy on this idea. Dean Acheson's State Department had debated the question of atomic weapons in the middle of November 1950, before the full extent of Chinese involvement was felt. At that point, State Department officials argued with cool logic that the probable costs of atomic strikes, measured in terms of shattered United Nations unity, decreased respect in Asia, and possible total war with China, far outweighed any possible military gains. As Roger Dingman notes, though, the psychological argument for nukes in Korea was also developing after Washington had learned from its previous policy mistakes. Dingman said, The psychology of the situation early in December 1950 reinforced the strength of that argument for Secretary of State Dean Acheson. He had wildly overestimated the rationality of the Chinese leaders in assuming that they would accept Washington's protestations of innocent intent during the United Nations' drive towards the Alu. If Beijing had misread his calculus of deterrence then, could he be certain now that the Chinese would respond rationally to any intimation of intent to resort to atomic arms? The Secretary of State thought not. It was definitely a time to keep his powder dry. These events, where an atomic bullet seemed to be in Washington's chamber, had the effect of shaping and influencing attitudes and policy towards atomic weapons in 1951. The interpretation of incidents and crises in 1950 had led the consensus to emerge that atomic weapons would only be used to cover a United Nations retreat or to destroy straight-up communist forces. With the limited war in play, there was now no question of using it to deter Chinese involvement or covert Soviet support, since both outcomes were underway anyway by spring 1951. The differences in MacArthur and Washington's views over how to resolve the war and bring about a negotiated settlement have been addressed in previous episodes, but these disagreements bled into the pre-existing debate on the atomic bomb. MacArthur's rhetoric surrounding its use grew from non-committal in early December 1950 to declaring the need to create fields of atomic waste across the Yalu in a late 1952 meeting with Eisenhower. MacArthur's memo, which he handed to Eisenhower during their meeting, was far more detailed and concise than the previous pronouncements which he had made on atomic weapons in the past. Washington's main concern, of course, wasn't that MacArthur would nuke the Chinese, since he had no such weapons in his hands in spring 1951, but that he would bomb the other side of the Yalu with just conventional weapons and escalate the conflict. By the time MacArthur did communicate his views to his old comrade, Eisenhower flatly rejected them, though not to MacArthur's face. Eisenhower understood the implications of MacArthur's plan, noted the historian H.W. Brands, who continued to note that, At the very least it would shatter the alliance system America had been building since 1945. At worst, it would trigger World War III. MacArthur's recommendations for laying radioactive materials in North Korea was lunacy. How would the Koreans live there even after a victory? Yet, if MacArthur shouldn't have been surprised, 
he nonetheless was galled at being ignored by his former subordinate. The trouble with Eisenhower, MacArthur muttered to some close supporters after his meeting with the president-elect, is that he doesn't have the guts to make a policy decision. He never did have the guts, and he never will. Douglas MacArthur's loony views on atomic weapons often disguise the status of atomic weapons within the two administrations. By casting MacArthur as the atomic-obsessed scapegoat, casual observers tend to forget the wider context of the bitter general's advice. At one point, atomic weapons had been a viable option, and during the preceding years before the Korean War entered the phase of limited stalemate that it did, atomic weaponry appeared useful as a tactic to deter and coerce one's foes. The limitations of this policy to use atomic deterrence were made clear when the Chinese failed to respond to the indirect, mixed signals of atomic considerations between November 1950 and the opening of the peace talks in July 1951. By the time the latter had begun at Song, it would have been highly impolitique for the Truman administration to suggest using a nuclear weapon to move the negotiations along. At least, that was what some in his administration believed. Over the 6th to the 7th of April 1951, a strange event, mostly forgotten in the annals of this forgotten war, took place. This was the moving out of the United States, for the first time since 1945, of nine fully armed and fully ready atom bombs for use against designated targets. What on earth were these weapons being shipped to Guam for? In the context of early April 1951, when the upper echelons of Washington were abuzz with rumours of MacArthur's dismissal, Truman engaged in a clever political ploy to demonstrate to the Joint Chiefs, who would be essential in granting the approval for MacArthur's dismissal, that Truman was firing the general because he couldn't be trusted rather than because of the general's loud demands that America must widen the war, the president had to act tough. The sending of these armed atom bombs to Guam, where they would subsequently be brought to Okinawa and thence aimed at the throat of the communists, gave the impression that Truman was more than willing to employ the kinds of policies which MacArthur implied Washington had no stomach for. Truman was firing MacArthur because he could not countenance putting nukes into his hands, since he couldn't trust the general. He wasn't firing him because he disapproved of these nukes, per se. The movement of these bombs did the trick, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff did vote their approval for the removal of MacArthur, and General Omar Bradley made this argument for Truman's reasoning to them in person. But had the president really gone to such trouble just to show his own subordinates that he meant business? Well, actually, Truman was attempting to kill two birds with one atomic stone. He did wish to remove MacArthur, and he believed this moving of the bombs would affect the approval of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which he required. Yet, the president was also mindful of the disconcerting rumours of communist cooperation and preparation, to the extent that in late March 1951, the whispers pointed to a joint Sino-Soviet strike in Japan, Korea, and possibly Western Europe. Realising that more must be done to deter and restrain its enemies, the administration made subtle use of atomic weapons in three ways over the next 90 days. First, General Ridgway was authorised to use the weapons sitting in Guam in the event that the Soviets or Chinese attacked elsewhere, and this authorization came with instructions to those crews in Guam to practice their flying and deployment strategy in the event that they were sent out in their apocalyptic mission. Second, diplomatic signals were sent through Hong Kong by an American diplomat who was instructed by Atchison to warn the Chinese communists. Not to misread MacArthur's relief and the administration's rejection of his call for expanded fighting as signs of weakness or timidity, 
there were limits to American patience and restraint, and Chinese leaders should be aware of Washington's ability to set their nation's development back for decades. The message was as stark as it was sudden. Did the United States really expect the Chinese or the Soviets to widen the war? In the event, Mao neither widened the war nor seemed to pay much attention to American warnings, launching one of his last offensives of the year in April. A third pillar in the campaign to deter its rivals was found in the Truman administration's communication of atomic weapons to its domestic rivals, so as to make discussion of the atom weaponry at home more widespread. In his conferences with the press in spring 1951, for example, Secretary of Defense George C. Marshall of the Marshall Plan fame underlined 11 times that the United States would retaliate with overwhelming force if the Sino-Soviet bloc decided to widen the war. In retrospect, the sending of atomic weapons abroad for the first time in six years seems to have been done as an exercise in deterrence, and while publicly, if they referred to it at all, Truman's officials could claim that because Beijing and Moscow refrained from widening the war, the tactic had been successful, privately there emerged a consensus that such moves should not be made again. In my view, it seems likely that the Truman administration hoped to begin peace talks earlier and to avoid another Chinese offensive which could reduce Allied bargaining power. The atomic approach, perhaps, was viewed as an opportunity for the United States to gain more leverage, while it also served the convenient political goal of Truman's improving his seriousness to the Joint Chiefs and wresting from them the approval to remove MacArthur. We know that in both the cases of Stalin and Mao, the idea of widening the war would have been immensely repugnant to each man's interests. Stalin was greatly enjoying the sight of his two rivals, even though one was his ally, fighting it out in a burdensome war with little possibility for an end in sight, and with a draining weariness setting in on both sides, he would have gained little by intervening even if he had wanted to, which he didn't. In Mao's case, the strategic benefits in confining the war to Korea thus far had saved the Chinese mainland from additional suffering, and fighting the Allies even in this capacity was more than enough for his regime. While he wouldn't shy away from it if it became a reality, for Mao to have looked for or to have provoked an escalation of this limited war into total conflict would have been the antithesis of his policy goals, them being to control a new North Korean satellite, gain some prestige by standing up to Washington, and consolidate his hold over the Chinese people by rallying them around this cause. We also know that Mao would come to adopt these aims only reluctantly, having, initially, had no desire to become involved at all. So why would he wish for further hardship and cost by giving the United States a reason to escalate the conflict? For these reasons, I believe the instance in April 1951 of Truman moving the atomic weapons to Guam was an exercise in political grandstanding as much as it was one to deter the communists from launching another offensive. While he acquired the removal of MacArthur, the other half of the plan was unsuccessful and the Chinese carried on in their counter-offensive regardless. Disappointed by this failure, Truman subsequently dressed it up as a success by claiming after the event that since the war hadn't widened, the nuclear deterrent had done its job. Significantly though, and this is how we know that he viewed it as a failure deep down, the atomic deterrent would never be used by the Truman administration again, and the atomic weapons, so long as Truman was president, would remain in their American bases. For those that would try to reason that the atomic deterrent had in fact been a success and that the peace overtures initiated by the Soviets in the United Nations was proof of this, we must note the pleasant surprise which greeted these Soviet overtures in Washington. 
If the Soviets had been moved to initiate these overtures because of the atomic deterrent, which I believe they weren't, then it wasn't by design in Washington. Indeed, it is far more likely that the Soviets rolled with the flow of the chatter coming from the United Nations and the United States, where both quarters claimed that an honourable peace that stopped at the 38th parallel would be acceptable. Once the communists and their allies sat down to talk and the 38th parallel option was not on the table, as we learned in episode 44, the communists were understandably furious, having likely only sat down to talk because they expected the status quo antebellum to be the outcome of the talks. To signal their frustration, or depending on whom you ask, because they intended to do so all along, the communists then used the peace talks for the remainder of 1951 to repair and improve their position so that they could demand the 38th parallel as their official boundary. With this background established then, guys, the actions of the Eisenhower administration in spring 1953 appear, well, far less straightforward. Now that we know that the Truman administration made use of atomic weapons several times, on occasion using the movement of these weapons for their political or diplomatic gain, this must mean that it was a natural transition for Eisenhower's administration to use them with real force and determination, as John Foster Dulles liked to claim that they did, right? Well, actually, as we said last time, it is really important for the sake of historical accuracy not to see straight lines where messy journeys occur. While it's impossible to measure the true impact that the different pronouncements on atomic weapons and capabilities had on the communists, to suggest that atomic diplomacy was the policy of the Eisenhower administration for ending the war, or that this was the sole reason an armistice was eventually achieved, is too great a leap from the reality. The true reasons for the achievement of an armistice after so many months of stalemate can only be explained through a combination of factors. These may include the atomic deterrent, but evidence does exist to suggest that atomic diplomacy was far from as important to Eisenhower as the conventional record tends to suggest. Next time we'll reconcile these contradictory and confusing messages, don't you worry, to bring the different strands to the armistice table and explain, hopefully in a satisfying way, how everyone came to be there by the 27th of July 1953 to sign on the dotted line and put the Korean War to bed. I hope you'll join me for that next time, History Friends, the penultimate episode of the Korean War, and I hope you've enjoyed this fascinating survey of atomic diplomacy during the early atomic age. Until next time, my name is Zach, this has been the Korean War episode 46, I'd like to say a huge thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.